Good morning, church family. Good morning slash early afternoon. Please open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 15. My name is Ernest Johnson, and I have the privilege and the honor of reading scripture today from the book of Colossians. And this Bible is recorded by human hands under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So we're reading God's word. This came from him. So let us open our hearts and ears to hear and really take in what he is saying to us. Colossians 2, 6 through 15. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the, the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Ernest. Well, if I haven't met you already, <clears throat> my name is Josh Youssef, and I'm one of the elders here at Christ Covenant. I'm just going to cough for a minute. So, Allergies. Uh, I'm Josh Youssef. I'm one of the elders here. I, um, I run an organization called Help the Persecuted. We work primarily Middle East and North Africa and Central Asia with the persecuted church, but I am not on staff at Christ's Covenant and evidenced by the fact that they gave me the circumcision passage. <laughs> I, was, I was supposed to preach in October and uh, I needed to switch days, and so I'm texting with Thomas and Jason. And Thomas, I think Thomas looked at the passage and thought, oh yeah, you can, have, you can have that date. Uh, last week, uh, Jason, he referenced Acts chapter 9, and it's the, the story of, of then Saul, who becomes Paul, his conversion experience on the road to Damascus. And the text says this, it says... Now, as he went on his way, 
He approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Jesus didn't say, why are you persecuting my people? He didn't say, why are you persecuting my followers? He said, why are you persecuting me? Oftentimes when I go to the Middle East, sometimes people will say, would you mind saying a few words to this persecuted group of peoples, which I feel wholly inadequate doing, by the way. But I oftentimes pick this passage and I tell them, this persecution you are experiencing is is not a personal persecution. It's actually directed at Jesus and Jesus' shoulders are big enough for this attack. And I can't tell you how many times a persecuted person tells me, they say, it is an honor to share in the sufferings of Christ. There's almost a, a joy in being united in Christ's suffering. And I'm talking this morning about union with Christ. It's, it's a very common theme in the scriptures. You see it uh, used in, in illustrations around marriage between Christ's church and Christ the bridegroom. But this passage deals with it in a different way. Uh, it helps us, uh, this union with Christ theme helps us to understand the metaphor of being buried with Christ, <clears throat> baptized, resurrected with him, in him. It helps us to understand what Paul is talking about when he says bodily or the body of the flesh. <clears throat> and I would argue that a right understanding of union with our Lord is the greatest sin killer that exists. It can be the greatest source of our identity, this union that we have with Jesus. And I broke this up into kind of four sections, and I said the first is a, it is a, it is a union that is fixed. Secondly, I want to distinguish between union and communion. And thirdly, our union in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection and fourthly, a debt-free union. So a union that is fixed, he uses words like received, so walk, rooted and build up, established. These words, established and rooted, are actually written in the, the perfect participle, meaning they cannot be changed. They're fixed. The, the deeply rooted phrase is, is like uh, you get the image of a, of a tree that's got deep roots next to a river or a strong house foundation. It is fixed. It cannot be changed. It cannot be altered. It is immovable. Emily and I are um, living out the Atlanta narrative by renovating our home. And you have your uh, ecclesiastical duty next time you hear me say the word renovations to uh, put my head in a vice and turn it as tight as you can until I agree not to renovate a home. The project has been a little more than we had anticipated, and uh, I bet you've never heard that phrase before. But um, our house sits on a floodplain, and the county was giving us really tight parameters around building out across the floodplain. 
And so they asked us to bring an engineer out and the engineer came and he brought this auger and he, he dug the auger like 26 to 30 feet down until it hit bedrock. And then they said, okay, you need more engineers to come out and put in what's called helical piers, these like little corkscrew looking things that go into the ground and then they, they concrete the footers, the posts go up. And my contractor looked at this and he said, this whole house could be blown up but those things will still be standing. <laughs> this is, in a sense, what Paul is describing when he says that our faith is rooted and established in verses six and seven. And, and to borrow from verse 11, it's not with human hands. This is, this, is, this is laid by God himself. God establishes the footers of our faith. And I can hear my, my systematics professor, Dr. Thomas, in his thick Welsh accent saying, this is a monergistic work, <laughs> meaning that we bring nothing to our salvation, nothing. We have nothing. We are filthy rags. We are dead in our trespasses, to use the text that we're studying. Before Christ, we are dead in our trespasses. It is only the Lord who can make us alive, only the Lord who can breathe life into us. It is only Christ himself who can set those foundations in place. Come whatever storms, whatever doubts, whatever straying, whatever wandering, these footers are perfect. If you love Jesus, these footers are perfect because they are Christ himself. The footers are Christ himself. So what are we to make of the verbs in the present tense? Walk, built up. Those are in the present tense. How do we reconcile these things? And theologians, they'll, they'll often talk about the indicative versus the imperative. Remember in English, an, indic an indicative word is, a, 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 is something that does not change. It cannot change. An imperative is a command. And so when we talk about salvation... We say that the justification, the way that God sees us, the foundations that are laid are in, indicative. They cannot change. They cannot move. But there is an imperative to follow and to build. And what I love about this passage is that it's almost as if there's no seams in the passage. It's not like he breaks indicative and imperative up. He says, if God lays the foundation, then you will naturally build on that foundation out of thanksgiving, in a thankful heart. It's as if he's saying, God lays this foundation supernaturally by his own sovereign power and will, and out of that thankfulness, we, res we respond in a, another theological term, synergistic way, together, cooperatively with the Holy Spirit. You want to continue to build on these footers because of the, the great love displayed on the cross. Our union with Christ is sure and unchangeable. It is fixed and equally sure is the evidence of our conversion. The evidence of a new life is a, a new desire, a change in direction. How many times have we heard baptism testimonies here of people saying, I was entrapped. I loved this thing in the world. And then that thing became sick to me. You began reading God's word and the things that captivated you no longer captivate you. They, they make you ill. And in this paradigm, what is happening? You're building on the foundation and the Holy Spirit in cooperation with this new life, this new resurrected life. 
is changing you, continually working out that process, building this house on a solid foundation. And I would just say, like, this is, this is sometimes what, why phrases like once saved, always saved are just unhelpful. They're unhelpful because it, they take something so complex and even mysterious and they reduce it to a sentence. Of course your salvation is secure. You, you need to know that, that there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God. The cooperation with the Lord His Holy Spirit can only happen if he has established these footers in your life, these perfect footers. And so these next few verses, I think, are a distinction between union and communion. And that's my second point in verses 8 and 10. You've got Paul is, is warning the church in Colossae not to be taken captive by anything that would draw them from building on these footers, these foundations, these Christ foundations. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive. The Coptic church, the Coptic church in Egypt, it's, it's 2,000 years old. When Jesus sent the disciples out, they scattered and the apostle Mark went to what is modern day Alexandria to preach the gospel. And the, the locals, some received Christ, but many uh, ultimately welcomed him to Alexandria by killing him. And so the church was born in persecution and around the time of uh, the advent of Islam around the 6th and 7th century, churches in North Africa were completely taken over by uh, Muslims. And there are seasons from about the 7th century to even today of Christian children being stolen out of Christian homes. And all of a sudden, little Samuel in the Christian home is now the son of Muhammad and Hadijah. And the church over the years was like, what do we do? They're stealing our babies. They're kidnapping our babies. So they started having these church services on Sunday nights and they would bring children as young as two years old and they would tattoo them with this tattoo right here on my wrist. I did this in my 20s to show solidarity with my Coptic roots. Baby wouldn't go missing without that mark on their wrist. That's not what Paul is saying. He's using that language, but he's not saying that this is a physical captivity. He's trying to illustrate that this is a a metaphorical captivity. They're, They're being taken captive by ideas and philosophy and things that are opposed to Christ. The church in Colossae was tempted towards uh, angel worship, and uh, there were these numerological signs that they followed, and they sought their identity in these numerological signs. And I think perhaps one of the greatest heresies that they were tempted to believe was this idea that there was really no guarantee of salvation. In fact, the only possible guarantee in salvation was when the, the body and the soul separate in death. So there was no promise here in this life. And it emptied the cross of assurance. It emptied the cross of its ability to restore, to heal, and to change in this life. Don't be taken captive. Don't let it captivate you. Emily and I, a few years back, we kind of got into this uh, 
um, Enneagram stuff. And um, we were listening to podcasts and reading books. And, you know, I found myself kind of saying, you know, I'm a seven and this is why, this is what sevens do. This is why sevens do it. And we went to this conference and, I mean, almost instantly when we got in the car, the Holy Spirit just like convicted us. Like, what are we doing? It felt more like stagnation to us. It felt more like conforming to what this number said about me and rather than being transformed, as the scripture says. And you can try to convince me later. You may not be under conviction about Enneagram. That was us. But be careful. Be careful what others say about you. Worry more about what Christ says about you. See to it that no one takes you captive. The distinction between union with Christ and communion with Christ is an important one. That the union with Christ is sure, guaranteed, it is certain. But what happens oftentimes is things captivate us. Philosophies captivate us. And we run after these things. And it, it interrupts our communion. And sometimes we think it's our union with him, but it's not. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10.5, he says that we need to take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. It is, this is actually an offensive position, not a defensive position. So we need to filter everything through how Christ views us in light of what the Lord says about us. And I think it is this offensive posture that I think Paul is, is getting at in verses 9 and 10 when he says, for in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Kind of a confusing phrase. He says, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. You see, you can look at it in terms of Christ's body when he lived on this earth. It was divine. It was a deity. Christ is seated at the right hand of God the Father right now, interceding on our behalf. A deity. But I think what Paul is saying here is that that same divine spirit dwells among us as believers right now. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. The community, in the community right now. This is not just something you can hope for in death. Fingers crossed. It is something that is a reality now. And this has enormous implications of how we view sin for how we appropriate our identity as a member of God's family. About a year ago, I had a uh, friend text me. He said, I have to meet with you. It's very important that I meet with you. And I knew something was up with this guy. So I found a quiet place for us to meet. For four hours, he wept and told me how he'd been unfaithful to his wife over and over and over again. <laughs> Somebody gave him a John MacArthur book on false assurance, and he read it, and he said, I'm going to hell without Jesus. It was so profound. It was so thorough, his conversion. 
we prayed and I said, look, what God has done is he has illuminated himself in your life and in your heart. And he's brought about this conviction and this hatred of this sin. I said, but you have to confess to your wife. That's one of the ways out. And he did. She was mad. That is an understatement. She was mad. But a few weeks later, she led him back to the house because she saw something different in it. About a month ago, he calls me. So now we're 12 months out. And he says, I need to meet with you. And Emily's like, oh, hope everything's okay. And we sat at that restaurant and he, again, just wept. He said he'd had no infractions in 12 months. Not one. Not even looking at a screen. And he said, in this time, I've grown so close to the Lord and my union with him has become just so intertwined that he's revealing other sins to me and things about anger and things that I overlooked in my life. And I'm realizing that my sin is drawing me away from God, is drawing me away from communion with him. And it, he kept saying over and over again, this hurts Jesus, this hurts Christ, this hurts the body of Christ. I was so convicted by it. This is what happens when we develop union with Christ. We begin to have communion with him and, and we, we desire that more and more. We, the more communion we have, the more we want and sometimes things interrupt it, but we have a covenant-making God who restores that relationship with us over and over again. Three, union with Christ is union in his death and his burial and his resurrection. So in this, these next few verses are really confusing. I was calling one of my, the, I, my office is actually in my seminary. So I always end up running down to the Old Testament guy when it's an Old Testament verse and I run down the hall to the New Testament guy. And I'm like, man, I've read this over and over again and I'm confused. I mean, who's being circumcised? Is this a corporate baptism? What's happening here? And it can be confusing. You see, to understand circumcision, we have to go back to the Old Testament. We have to go back to God as a, a covenant-making God, a covenant-keeping God. You see, he's really good at that. We are not so much. You see, the Lord had instructed Abraham after he replaced the sacrifice of Isaac at the altar. He went to Abraham and he said, now I want a sign. I'm going to give you a sign of this covenant between me and your offspring. And it's going to mean cutting off your foreskin. And then they instituted on the eighth day that a child would be circumcised. And even Abraham himself, who was in his 90s, had his foreskin cut off. And this might, I'm seeing some of you like wincing right now, of like men are crossing their legs. And it, it is, it causes discomfort. And, and if it does, it's, 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 it's met its desired effect. The Lord is a, a covenant maker, a covenant keeper. And we are by nature covenant breakers. The Lord 
keeps his end of the bargain for a thousand generations. But time and time again, we forget. And God was gonna say, don't forget. And our boys, we have two girls and two boys, and they ask you when you're at the neonatal uh, unit, you know, there's this little piece of paper. Do you want to, yes or no, do you want your son to be circumcised? And circumcision is, takes on a whole different meaning now. It's, it's, it's more for the child's health, and there's a whole thing there. It's not the religious meaning that it had in the Old Testament. But we always said yes, and, you know, it was kind of a hard thing when they wheel your newborn baby boy in with this, this bandage. And even as you bathe him, it hurts. He's crying. I can feel it. <laughs> Mom feels it. The girls feel it. We all hear it in the house. It's a reminder. Um, this idea of covenants. Uh, some of you who knew that uh, I, we had been, been involved in my organization had been involved in the evacuation of some Christians out of Afghanistan back in 2021. And we, we chartered two aircraft, flew in into Mazar Sharif in the north, took about 400 Christians, about 145 Hazara minorities who were being hunted by the Taliban. And so some of you have come up to me, you said, you've got to go see this movie, The Covenant, Guy Ritchie's The Covenant. And so Friday night, Emily obliged and watched it with me. She, she doesn't like my Middle East uh, war movies. And I knew when I saw the first scene, I said, this is going to make me angry. Because those years, that year, 2021, was, was hard. It was hard to see that we had abandoned Afghan interpreters, people who had, who had staked their life to work with our troops, and they were promised by an administration that they would get special immigration visas for them and their wives and their kids. And the movie depicts so well this abandonment of that covenant. And the Taliban ultimately hunted down these interpreters who worked alongside our troops and killed them. You see, governments aren't good with making and keeping covenants. Men are not great at meeting, making covenants and keeping them. Our hope is not in the administration or a government. It's, it's in God who not only makes a covenant, he keeps it and he gives us a sign, a sign for us to remember because he doesn't want us to forget. It's his grace Circumcision is a sign of the covenant. It was a bloody and physical delineation between two communities or bodies. The Hebrews who were circumcised and everybody else who wasn't. And in this, I, I think N.T. Wright is correct. And other scholars are correct in that this putting off of the flesh that Paul is talking about, this circumcision of the heart, this circumcision putting off of the body of the flesh is both a putting off of our fleshly desires, sin, but it is a putting off of a previous community. It is putting off of a previous body of people. This is redemption at a spiritual level. 
It can only be accomplished by the circumcision that took place at the cross. Christ was stripped off at the crucifixion so that his church would come under his new covenant in his blood. His flesh was stripped in the crucifixion for our sake. And just like that, Paul turns the passage from circumcision to baptism. And he says, having been buried with him in baptism. And baptism has two meanings. It, 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 in, a, in a literal sense, it means to dip or immerse in water. But it also, in a metaphorical sense, means identify with. And I think this passage is the latter. It's, a, it's an identification. Paul has made the connection between the covenant of circumcision and the covenant of baptism. And it is a symbolic It is symbolic of our death to sin, death to the old world, death to the old body, and raised in new life in Christ. This is why we say those words at baptism. You've seen it. Dead dead to sin, alive in Christ. Going under the water is a symbol of death, and the coming up out of the water is a symbol of being made alive. But regardless of mode of baptism, even though I was able to convince a Presbyterian pastor recently that this passage is a great passage to prove the mode of immersion. So, but regardless, baptism is an outward sign of an inward reality. And it is that inward reality that Paul is driving home as the source of our union, our identification with the Lord. In this symbolic death, we are in effect saying that we leave the old communities and old bodies and join a new family. You know, I, I get a, the, one of the best things, Jessica Jatan, who works with me, she just came from back from uh, the Middle East, and she got to see these baptisms, and she was texting me. She said, wow, like, I am changed. And I was like, there's nothing like a convert from Islam saying and rejecting his old world and his old body of, of people and coming up out of that water. It is a beautiful thing. And, and I've had the, the privilege of, of getting to baptize many of these people. In fact, my team, when I get on the ground, they're, they're like, they line up all these baptisms for me because they don't want to have to go before the secret police and answer the question, have you ever baptized a Muslim? And one of the questions that I was told, you have to ask this question, it's, are you prepared to suffer for Jesus Christ? That's a question we ask. And one of the things that happens is sometimes there's a a decision point in the life of a Muslim, but it could take six months to a year for them to decide to be baptized. The, The baptism is very public. And in that public display, in that public baptism, immediately the community is against them. The mosque is against them. Their own family members are against them. It is, in effect, a death to the mosque and the whole community that they were once part of and rebirth into this new family, this new family of Christ, of God. Our union with Christ is not just in death and in burial, but this is the best part. It's in resurrection, raised with him, made alive together. These are the phrases that Paul is using here in this text. This is a powerful reality for the, the Colossian church, which had adopted this weird theology that there was no guarantee in salvation and maybe there was some guarantee in the fact that we die and our spirit and our body are separated. This was a great comfort to them. 
that we, we not only die to self and share in the death and burial, but the good news is we are co-resurrected with Christ now, not in death. Fourth, a debt-free union. This is a, a debt-free relationship we have with God. There's been a lot in the news lately about uh, household debt and uh, as interest rates go up, they always talk about household debt is increasing and there was a recent article about school debts being forgiven again and debt is one of those things that can consume us. It's easy to drown it out when cash is easily available and interest rates are low, but when it gets tight, that debt becomes this almost noose around our neck. It, it paralyzes us. It can feel as if you're drowning. But this debt in verse 14, it, it, it is so big. It is so enormous. It is so much bigger than any debt that could be repaid at a, in a student loan or a house debt. It's huge. It cannot even be quantified. It is also a universal debt that we all are under. And notice that Paul moves from the pronoun you to us. He's saying that both Jew and Greek have this debt. The Jew, because the law will not save them. And the Greek, because up until now, they have been kept out of the covenant. But the good news is that at the cross, what Martin Luther calls the wondrous exchange, the wondrous exchange took place Christ gives us his righteousness in place of our sins. This massive debt is replaced with an unending supply of funds. We give Christ our sins and he gives us his righteousness. It's almost scandalous. I'll never forget in the early days of Christ's covenant, There was this woman, and she had been part of the sex worker industry in Atlanta for a long time, and the Lord had rescued her out of that. I'll never forget her words. She said, I gave Jesus my worst, and he gave me his best. That is the exchange. That is the exchange that took place on the cross. You know, in a moment, um, we're going to take communion. It's a, another sign of a covenant. And God, in his mercy, gave us these elements, a visual reminder to point us back to this great exchange on the cross. Because we're prone to wander. We're prone to forget as we sing. If you're united with Christ, you have union with Christ, this is a great time to, to re-communicate with him, commune with him again, once again. But if you're not in union with him, and you, you know it, that the foundations are not there, I would ask that you would allow the elements to pass. Let me pray, and then I'll come back up, and we'll have, we'll have communion. Lord, we love you. And I thank you for this passage. I thank you. I thank you for your blood. I thank you for what you did. 
And I ask, Lord, that you would help us to understand that your union is sure, your foundations are fixed. May we not, Lord, be captive to the things of this world, the philosophies, the empty deceit, as Paul says, but that we would always run back to you in that communion, even when we stray, even when we wander, even when we fail, that we would immediately run back to you. We thank you for this beautiful, wonderful covenant of communion, this, this sign of your covenant made in your blood and by the broken, your broken body. Lord, would you, even as we sing right now, I pray that you would just bring to mind any, anything that is causing that disfellowship, that, that, that lack of communion with you. And if there are people here, Lord, that have no union with you, that you would even now begin to speak to them. We love you. We love you. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name.